Chapter 4, Part 1 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Chapter 4, Part 1 History of the Progress of Geology. Werner's application of geology to the art of mining, excursive character of his lectures, enthusiasm of his pupils, his authority, his theoretical errors, Demarest's map and description of Auvergne, controversy between the Vulcanists and Neptunists, intemperance of the rival sects, Hutton's theory of the earth, his discovery of granite veins, Originality of his views. Why opposed? Playfair's illustrations. Influence of Voltaire's writings on geology. Imputations cast on the Huttonians by Williams, Kerwan and De Luc. Smith's map of England. Geological Society of London. Progress of the science in France. Growing importance of the study of organic remains. Werner. The art of mining has long been taught in France, Germany and Hungary, in scientific institutions established for that purpose, where mineralogy has always been a principal branch of instruction. Werner was named, in 1775, professor of that science in the School of Mines at Freiburg in Saxony. He directed his attention not merely to the composition and external characters of minerals, but also to what he termed geognosy, or the natural position of minerals in particular rocks, together with the grouping of those rocks, their geographical distribution and various relations. The phenomena observed in the structure of the globe had hitherto served for little else than to furnish interesting topics for philosophical discussion. But when Werner pointed out their application to the practical purposes of mining, they were instantly regarded by a large class of men as an essential part of their professional education. And from that time, the science was cultivated in Europe most ardently and systematically. Werner's mind was at once imaginative and richly stored with miscellaneous knowledge. He associated everything with his favourite science, and in his excursive lectures he pointed out all the economical uses of minerals and their application to medicine. The influence of the mineral composition of rocks upon the soil, and of the soil upon the resources, wealth and civilization of man. The vast sandy plains of Tartary and Africa, he would say, retained their inhabitants, in the shape of wandering shepherds. The granitic mountains and the low calcareous and alluvial plains gave rise to different manners, degrees of wealth and intelligence. The history even of languages and the migration of tribes had been determined by the direction of particular strata. The qualities of certain stones used in building would lead him to descant on the architecture of different ages and nations and the physical geography of a country 
frequently invited him to treat of military tactics. The charm of his manners and his eloquence kindled enthusiasm in the minds of his pupils, and many, who had intended at first only to acquire a slight knowledge of mineralogy, when they had once heard him, devoted themselves to it as the business of their lives. In a few years, a small school of mines, before unheard of in Europe, was raised to the rank of a great university, and men already distinguished in science studied the German language and came from the most distant countries to hear the great oracle of geology. Werner had a great antipathy to the mechanical labour of writing, and, with the exception of a valuable treatise on metalliferous veins, he could never be persuaded to pen more than a few brief memoirs, and those containing no development of his general views. Although the natural modesty of his disposition was excessive, approaching even to timidity, he indulged in the most bold and sweeping generalizations, and he inspired all his scholars with a most implicit faith in his doctrines. Their admiration of his genius and the feelings of gratitude and friendship which they all felt for him were not undeserved. But the supreme authority usurped by him over the opinions of his contemporaries was eventually prejudicial to the progress of the science. So much so as greatly to counterbalance the advantages which it derived from his exertions. If it be true that delivery be the first, second and third requisite in a popular orator, it is no less certain that to travel is of first, second and third importance to those who desire to originate just and comprehensive views concerning the structure of our globe. Now Werner had not travelled to distant countries. He had merely explored a small portion of Germany and conceived and persuaded others to believe that the whole surface of our planet and all the mountain chains in the world were made after the model of his own province. It became a ruling object of ambition in the minds of his pupils to confirm the generalizations of their great master and to discover in the most distant parts of the globe his universal formations, which he supposed had been each in succession simultaneously precipitated over the whole earth from a common menstruum or chaotic fluid. It now appears that the Saxon professor had misinterpreted many of the most important appearances even in the immediate neighbourhood of Freiburg. Thus, for example, within a day's journey of his school, the porphyry, called by him primitive, has been found not only to send forth veins or dikes through strata of the coal formation, but to overlie them in mass. The granite of the Hartz Mountains, on the other hand, which he supposed to be the nucleus of the chain, is now well known to traverse the other beds as near Goslar and still nearer Freiburg in the Erzgebirge. The mica slate does not mantle round the granite as was supposed, but abuts abruptly against it. Fragments also of the grey Wacker slate containing organic remains have recently been found entangled in the granite of the Hartz by Monsieur de Seckendorf. 
principal merit of Werner's system of instruction consisted in steadily directing the attention of his scholars to the constant relations of superposition of certain mineral groups. But he had been anticipated, as has been shown in the last chapter, in the discovery of this general law by several geologists in Italy and elsewhere, and his leading divisions of the secondary strata were at the same time and independently made the basis of an arrangement of the British strata by our countryman William Smith, to whose work I shall refer in the sequel. Controversy between the Vulcanists and Neptunists In regard to basalt and other igneous rocks, Werner's theory was original, but it was also extremely erroneous. The basalts of Saxony and Hesse, to which his observations were chiefly confined, consisted of tabular masses capping the hills, and not connected with the levels of existing valleys, like many in Auvergne and the Vivarais. These basalts and all other rocks of the same family in other countries were, according to him, chemical precipitates from water. He denied that they were the products of submarine volcanoes, and even taught that, in the primeval ages of the world, there were no volcanoes. His theory was opposed, in a twofold sense, to the doctrine of the permanent agency of the same causes in nature. For not only did he introduce, without scruple, many imaginary causes supposed to have once effected great revolutions in the earth, and then to have become extinct, but new ones also were feigned to have come into play in modern times and above all, that most violent instrument of change, the agency of subterranean heat. So early as 1768, before Werner had commenced his mineralogical studies, Drasper had truly characterised the basalts of Hesse as of igneous origin. Arduino, we have seen, had pointed out numerous varieties of trap rock in the Vicentin, as analogous to volcanic products and as distinctly referable to ancient submarine eruptions. Dimares, as before stated, had, in company with Fortis, examined the Vicentin in 1766 and confirmed Arduino's views. In 1772, Banks, Solander and Troil compared the columnar basalt of Hecla with that of the Hebrides. Collini, in 1774, recognised the true nature of the igneous rocks on the Rhine, between Andernach and Bonn. In 1775, Guiettard visited the Vivarais and established the relation of, of basaltic currents to lavas. Lastly, in 1779, Royas published his description of the volcanoes of the Vivarais and Velay and showed how the streams of basalt had poured out from craters which still remain in a perfect state. Demarest, when sound opinions had thus for twenty years prevailed in Europe concerning the true nature of the ancient trap rocks, Werner, by his simple dictum, caused a retrograde movement, and not only overturned the true theory, but substituted for it one of the most unphilosophical that can well be imagined. 
the continued ascendancy of his dogmas on this subject was the more astonishing because a variety of new and striking facts were daily accumulated in favour of the correct opinions previously entertained. Demarest, after a careful examination of Auvergne, pointed out, first, the most recent volcanoes, which had their craters still entire, and their streams of lava conforming to the level of the present river courses. He then showed that there were others of an intermediate epoch, whose craters were nearly effaced, and whose lavas were less intimately connected with the present valleys. And lastly, that there were volcanic rocks, still more ancient, without any discernible craters or scoriae, and bearing the closest analogy to rocks in other parts of Europe, the igneous origin of which was denied by the school of Freiburg. Demarest's map of Auvergne was a work of uncommon merit. He first made a trigonometrical survey of the district, and delineated its physical geography with minute accuracy and admirable graphic power. He contrived, at the same time, to express without the aid of colours many geological details, including the different ages and sometimes even the structure of the volcanic rocks, and distinguishing them from the fresh water and the granitic. They alone who have carefully studied Auvergne and traced the different lava streams from their craters to their termination, the various isolated basaltic cappings, the relation of some lavas to the present valleys, the absence of such relations in others, can appreciate the extraordinary fidelity of this elaborate work. No other district of equal dimensions in Europe exhibits, perhaps, so beautiful and varied a series of phenomena, and fortunately, Demarest possessed at once the mathematical knowledge required for the construction of a map, skill in mineralogy, and a power of original generalization. Dolomure Montlosier. Dolomure, another of Werner's contemporaries, had found prismatic basalt among the ancient lavas of Etna, and, in 1784, had observed the alternations of submarine lavas and calcareous strata in the Val di Noto in Sicily. In 1790, also, he described similar phenomena in the Vincentin and in the Tyrol. Montlosier published, in 1788, an essay on the theories of volcanoes of Auvergne, combining accurate local observations with comprehensive views. Notwithstanding this mass of evidence, the scholars of Werner were prepared to support his opinions to their utmost extent, maintaining, in the fullness of their faith, that even obsidian was an aqueous precipitate. As they were blinded by their veneration for the great teacher, they were impatient of opposition, and soon imbibed the spirit of a faction, and their opponents, the Vulcanists, were not long in becoming contaminated with the same intemperate zeal. Ridicule and irony were weapons more frequently employed than argument by the rival sects, till at last the controversy was carried on with a degree of bitterness almost unprecedented in questions of physical science. Demarest 
who had long before provided ample materials for refuting such a theory, kept aloof from the strife, and whenever a zealous Neptunist wished to draw the old man into an argument, he was satisfied with replying, Go and see. Hutton, 1788 It would be contrary to all analogy in matters of graver import that a war should rage with such fury on the continent and that the inhabitants of our island should not mingle in the affray. Although in England the personal influence of Werner was wanting to stimulate men to the defence of the weaker side of the question, they contrived to find good reason for espousing the Wernerian errors with great enthusiasm. In order to explain the peculiar motives which led many to enter, even with party feeling, into this contest, it will be necessary to present the reader with a sketch of the views unfolded by Hutton, a contemporary of the Saxon geologist. The former naturalist had been educated as a physician, but declining the practice of medicine, he resolved, when young, to remain content with the small independence inherited from his father, and thenceforth to give his undivided attention to scientific pursuits. He resided at Edinburgh, where he enjoyed the society of many men of high attainments, who loved him for the simplicity of his manners and the sincerity of his character. His application was unwearied, and he made frequent tours through different parts of England and Scotland, acquiring considerable skill as a mineralogist, and consequently arriving at grand and comprehensive views in geology. He communicated the results of his observations unreservedly and with the fearless spirit of one who was conscious that love of truth was the sole stimulus of his exertions. When at length he had matured his views, he published, in 1788, his Theory of the Earth, and the same, afterwards more fully developed in a separate work, in 1795. This treatise was the first in which geology was declared to be in no way concerned about questions as to the origin of things, the first in which an attempt was made to dispense entirely with all hypothetical causes and to explain the former changes of the Earth's crust by reference exclusively to natural agents. Hutton laboured to give fixed principles to geology, as Newton had succeeded in doing to astronomy. But in the former science, too little progress had been made towards furnishing the necessary data to enable any philosopher, however great his genius, to realise so noble a project. Huttonian Theory The ruins of an older world, said Hutton, are visible in the present structure of our planet, and the strata which now compose our continents have been once beneath the sea and were formed out of the waste of pre-existing continents. The same forces are still destroying, by chemical decomposition or mechanical violence, even the hardest rocks, and transporting the materials to the sea, where they are spread out and form strata analogous to those of more ancient date. Although loosely deposited along the bottom of the ocean, 
they become afterwards altered and consolidated by volcanic heat and then heaved up, fractured and contorted. Although Hutton had never explored any region of active volcanoes, he had convinced himself that basalt and many other trap rocks were of igneous origin and that many of them had been injected in a melted state through fissures in the older strata. The compactness of these rocks and their different aspect from that of ordinary lava he attributed to their having cooled down under the pressure of the sea. And in order to remove the objections started against this theory, his friend, Sir James Hall, instituted a most curious and instructive series of chemical experiments, illustrating the crystalline arrangement and texture assumed by melted matter cooled under high pressure. The absence of stratification in granite and its analogy in mineral character to rocks which he deemed of igneous origin led Hutton to conclude that granite also must have been formed from matter in fusion, and this inference he felt could not be fully confirmed unless he discovered at the contact of granite and other strata a repetition of the phenomena exhibited so constantly by the trap rocks. Resolved to try his theory by this test, he went to the Grampians and surveyed the line of junction of the granite and superincumbent stratified masses until he found in Glen Tilt in 1785 the most clear and unequivocal proofs in support of his views. Veins of red granite are there seen branching out from the principal mass and traversing the black micaceous schist and primary limestone. The intersected stratified rocks are so distinct in colour and appearance as to render the example in that locality most striking, and the alteration of the limestone in contact was very analogous to that produced by trap veins on calcareous strata. This verification of his system filled him with delight, and called forth such marks of joy and exultation that the guides who accompanied him, says his biographer, were convinced that he must have discovered a vein of silver or gold. He was aware that the same theory would not explain the origin of the primary schists, but these he called primary, rejecting the term primitive, and was disposed to consider them as sedimentary rocks altered by heat and that they originated in some other form from the waste of previously existing rocks. By this important discovery of granite veins, to which he had been led by fair induction from an independent class of facts, Hutton prepared the way for the greatest innovation of the systems of his predecessors. Vallisneri had pointed out the general fact that there were certain fundamental rocks which contained no organic remains and which he supposed to have been formed before the creation of living beings. Moro, Generelli and other Italian writers embraced the same doctrine and Lehmann regarded the mountains called by him primitive as parts of the original nucleus of the globe. 
The same tenet was an article of faith in the school of Freiburg, and if any one ventured to doubt the possibility of our being enabled to carry back our researches to the creation of the present order of things, the granitic rocks were triumphantly appealed to. On them seemed written, in legible characters, the memorable inscription, Dinanzi eme non fur cose create se non eterne. And no small sensation was excited when Hutton seemed, with unhallowed hand, desirous to erase characters already regarded by many as sacred. In the economy of the world, said the Scotch geologist, I can find no traces of a beginning, no prospect of an end. A declaration the more startling when coupled with the doctrine that all past ages on the globe had been brought about by the slow agency of existing causes. The imagination was first fatigued and overpowered by endeavouring to conceive the immensity of time required for the annihilation of whole continents by so insensible a process. And when the thoughts had wandered through these interminable periods, no resting place was assigned in the remotest distance. The oldest rocks were represented to be of a derivative nature, the last of an antecedent series, and that, perhaps, one of many pre-existing worlds. Such views of the immensity of past time, like those unfolded by the Newtonian philosophy in regard to space, were too vast to awaken ideas of sublimity unmixed with a painful sense of our own incapacity to conceive a plan of such infinite extent. Worlds are seen beyond worlds, immeasurably distant from each other, and, beyond them all, innumerable other systems are faintly traced on the confines of the visible universe. The characteristic feature of the Huttonian theory was, as before hinted, the exclusion of all causes not supposed to belong to the present order of nature. But Hutton had made no step beyond Hook, Moreau and Raspe in pointing out in what manner the laws now governing subterranean movements might bring about geological changes, if sufficient time be allowed. On the contrary, he seems to have fallen far short of some of their views, especially when he refused to attribute any part of the external configuration of the Earth's crust to subsidence. He imagined that the continents were first gradually destroyed by aqueous degradation, and when their ruins had furnished materials for new continents, they were upheaved by violent convulsions. He therefore acquired alternate periods of general disturbance and repose, and such he believed had been, and would forever be, the course of nature. Generelli, in his exposition of Moro's system, had made a far nearer approximation towards reconciling geological appearances with the state of nature as known to us, for while he agreed with Hutton that the decay and reproduction of rocks were always in progress, proceeding with the utmost uniformity, the learned Carmelite represented the repairs of mountains by elevation from below to be effected by an equally constant 
and synchronous operation. Neither of these theories, considered singly, satisfies all the conditions of the great problem which a geologist who rejects cosmological causes is called upon to solve, but they probably contain together the germs of a perfect system. There can be no doubt that periods of disturbance and repose have followed each other in succession in every region of the globe. But it may be equally true that the energy of the subterranean movements have been always uniform as regards the whole earth. The force of earthquakes may for a cycle of years have been invariably confined, as it is now, to large but determinate spaces, and may then have gradually shifted its position, so that another region, which had for ages been at rest, became in its turn the grand theatre of action. Playfair's Illustrations of Hutton The explanation proposed by Hutton and by Playfair, the illustrator of his theory, respecting the origin of valleys and of alluvial accumulations, was also very imperfect. They ascribed none of the inequalities of the earth's surface to movements which accompanied the upheaving of the land, imagining that valleys in general were formed in the course of ages by the rivers now flowing in them, while they seem not to have reflected on the excavating and transporting power which the waves of the ocean might exert on land during its emergence. Although Hutton's knowledge of mineralogy and chemistry was considerable, he possessed but little information concerning organic remains. They merely served him, as they did Werner, to characterise certain strata and to prove their marine origin. The theory of former revolutions in organic life was not yet fully recognised, and without this class of proofs in support of the antiquity of the globe, the indefinite periods demanded by the Huttonian hypothesis appeared visionary to many, and some, who deemed the doctrine inconsistent with revealed truths, indulged very uncharitable suspicions of the motives of its author. They accused him of a deliberate design of reviving the heathen dogma of an eternal succession and of denying that this world ever had a beginning. Playfair, in the biography of his friend, has the following comment on this part of their theory. In the planetary motions, where geometry has carried the eye so far, both into the future and the past, we discover no mark either of the commencement or termination of the present order. It is unreasonable indeed to suppose that such marks should anywhere exist. The author of nature has not given laws to the universe which, like the institutions of men, carry in themselves the elements of their own destruction. He has not permitted in his works any symptom of infancy or of old age, or any sign by which we may estimate either their future or their past duration. He may put an end, as he no doubt gave a beginning, to the present system at some determinate period of time, but we may rest assured that this great catastrophe will not be brought about by the laws now existing, 
and that it is not indicated by anything which we perceive. The party feeling excited against the Huttonian doctrines and the open disregard of candor and temper in the controversy will hardly be credited by the reader unless he recalls to his recollection that the mind of the English public was at that time in a state of feverish excitement. A class of writers in France had been labouring industriously for many years to diminish the influence of the clergy by sapping the foundations of the Christian faith and their success and the consequences of the revolution had alarmed the most resolute minds, while the imagination of the more timid was continually haunted by dread of innovation as by the phantom of some fearful dream. End of chapter 4, part 1